Dear Heavenly Father, I thank you so much for this time, for this opportunity to be together in your world and in your word, to celebrate and explore the incredible grace and mercy of your kingdom. In Jesus' name, amen. In 1999, Rene Girard published a book called I See Satan Fall Like Lightning. Now, Girard is an incredibly well-known French philosopher, analytic critic, sociologist, right? He has done everything. So it is no surprise that a book that he writes would rise to the bestseller list in France. What is surprising or fun is that it is in a book entirely about the uniqueness and power of Jesus and the gospel. Now, in this book, right, he clearly goes through and exemplifies how Jesus and the Bible and the gospel are unique and powerful because of the way that they take myths and stories that have been working as sort of the underpinning of ancient cultures and religions and completely redefines and retells them and makes them new. Now, he points out that in academia at the time, there'd been a real push to not make these comparisons, right? Because the idea was, no, 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 no. The Bible is very much its own thing. It is not like anything else. But what he encourages us to see is that if we do that, if we miss these comparisons to ancient myths and stories, then we're kind of pulling the plug on one of the most powerful tools we have to say what is here in scripture is unique and power, and if you will, nowhere else on the marketplace. It's completely changed the way we can talk about love and community. It is different. And because of that, its glory is so defined. So one of the things that we're gonna look at today before we jump into John 8 is, well, then what stories are getting retold here that make it so powerful. Now, Father Tim has done us a huge service and we've already done some of this. So believe it or not, you're all already totally on board with this idea, right? Because we've talked about how, like in scripture, we have a creation myth. There are a lot of other creation myths, right? So what is unique is not that we have one, but how God shows up in ours, right? That is what makes it powerful. So to really kind of show this, we've got two quick principles to look at, right? And so these Girard points out are sort of like base code that are running under all archaic religions and cultures. And those two things are the principle of mimetic violence and that of the myth of the scapegoat, right? So mimetic violence, he details through ancient culture, through Greek mythology, through Shakespearean literature, all the way up to modern times is this deep human principle that we mimic violence. That one violent act starts the snowball of others, right? And he says, this is everywhere, right? So violence is a principle in our human sort of bones that just wants to blossom and grow until it reaches a fever pitch, especially in ancient societies, that this anger must be addressed. And the way it would usually get addressed was through scapegoats and sacrifice. So this sacrifice, right, often in ancient societies, human, right? But this violent act of a scapegoat 
would then quell the anger enough that society could keep going. And then the cycle would begin again. There would be another scapegoat act, another sacrifice, and then the cycle would go again. It's everywhere, right? It's really incredible. If you're interested, please read more, right? So these two principles are what we want to look at. Now, to kind of give you a taste of, well, how would that play out? How do we know that this John 8 story of the woman caught in adultery is special if we don't know what a reader might have expected to hear? So we're going to look real quick at a wild story from the second century. So Gerard pulls this text out from the second century about a second, about a guru, like a pagan guru called Apollonius of Tyre, right? So the people in Ephesus had a problem. They were experiencing a plague. Now this plague, he says, isn't like a biological plague, but it is a plague of violence and infighting and societal unrest, right? It is a deeply troubled city. So the people cry out to the pagan gods and say, we need help. Something needs to change. So up pops Apollonius, right? He comes into Ephesus, gathers all the people into the theater, and on his way in, scoops up a blind, destitute beggar from outside the theater. Puts him in the middle and says to the city, this guy, he is an enemy of the gods. You stone him, everything's going to get better. And the text says the people were resistant. They didn't want to do it. They're like, this can't be right. So Apollonius has to like go campaigning, right? He's egging them on. This is the problem. The gods need you to make this sacrifice because he knows if he can get that first stone, right? The cycle of violence will start. And sure enough, it does, right? The first stone is thrown and now Apollonius can go take a nap, right? The system has started. He can be done. The beggar is killed. And sure enough, in the accounting of the story, it says the plague was cured, which Gerard points out, of course it was, right? Apollonius gave this crowd that had been living as all versus all the opportunity to live as all versus one. They can experience catharsis. They release this anger. It comes down so they can live more peaceably for a time until the cycle goes back. Now, this is an incredibly upsetting story, right? This does not sit well with us. But to a lot of ancient hearers, this would have been like, sounds about right, right? Sounds about right. And who got the glory? Apollonius got fame from it, but Hercules was credited because there was a statue of him in the theater. And that's how ancient gods sort of arose, right? They would just sort of be given credit for this human cycle of violence. So with that kind of tucked in your head back here, right? We're gonna move into John 8, where something completely different happens. So John 8 opens with Jesus sitting outside the temple steps and teaching. This is like the classic position of the authoritative teacher, right? Sitting, teaching. And then a crowd of scribes and Pharisees bring him a woman caught in adultery. So already big difference from Apollonius, right? Apollonius goes in, grabs the victim, and riles up the crowd. Jesus is just teaching, and an already incensed crowd comes to him with a victim, right? And they say to him, teacher, Moses commands us in his law to stone a woman like this. Now, they're not wrong, 
right? But they're also not quite right. So in the law of Moses, what it does say is that stoning is on the table for adultery, but you need two witnesses. They can't have been involved in the sin. And then these two witnesses have to be the ones to throw the first stone, which Gerard points out, even in the Old Testament, they're pushing the cultural needle away from violence because it is much harder to get two people to throw a first stone than one. So as the Bible moves from Old into New Testament, farther and farther away from violence, it's already starting back here. You need two people. The law also says that you bring the woman and the man and both are stoned. So where's the guy? Was it a setup? Or does it just not matter to them because this whole escapade isn't even about her? This isn't about the law. This isn't upholding justice. This isn't about moral correction. It doesn't matter. She is being purely sort of exploited to prove a point to get their needs met. It is not about her. It is not about the law because if it was, then the guy would have to be there. He's not. So the point in the text says this, they're trying to trap him. They want Jesus brought on charges. That's the goal. And they think they've done a pretty good job at it, right? Because as far as they can tell, no matter what Jesus answers, he gets charges. And again, they're not wrong. So if Jesus says, yep, go for it, stoner, totally. Not only is he completely going against everything he's taught up to this point, right? Everything about caring for the poor, compassion and love and challenging the legalism and the law. But he's also infringing on the rights of the Roman prefect. It was only the prefect of Rome who could impose capital punishment. The Jews were not allowed to give the death sentence. So if Jesus says, yep, you're right, she has to be stoned, then he will be charged by Rome. That's fine with the Pharisees. If he says, no, 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 what are you doing? You can't stone this lady, no. Then what they can do is say, you've violated the law of Moses. You've stood in the face of our laws. So now we can bring you into an official council before the Sanhedrin and you can be charged. It's a great plan, right? If Jesus was willing to play along, right? If he was willing, this would have been a great plan. But instead, what does he do? He's already sitting. So he sort of like stoops or hunches over and countless ink spilled on what was he writing, right? Your guess would be as good as anybody else from Gerard who says, this is not about what was written, but the posture he had to take to write it, right? So by looking down, he could avoid the gaze of bloodshot eyes and angry men. What he is doing here, maybe, is avoiding even the shadow of provocation, right? Because how do we threaten and communicate in posture, right? We square up, eye contact, and he's not giving it to them. He's not giving them the opportunity to read into his eye contact threat or agreement. 
He's looking down. He is in a completely different game than they are. But then it says they push him, right? They're like, hello? (laughs) We asked you a question, right? So they push at him. And then it says he stands up. He stands up. And in this moment that he stands, Jesus and Apollonius have the same problem in different ways. The game was set. That's all he needed. So he has to work really hard to dehumanize the victim, to rile up the crowd, to create an incentive. He has to go campaigning for this stone. But Jesus knows something else. Jesus knows that there's something about nonviolence that can be contagious too. So what Jesus has to do is also emphasize the first stone, but the deep and powerful responsibility of it. That's Jesus's job. And he does that, right? He does that by saying, let him who is without sin. Yeah, the law of Moses said you couldn't be involved in the sin to bear witness. What I'm saying is you need to be sinless to do this. Let them cast that first stone because you know, you know, if you're the one that throws the first one, the mimetic cycle will take off all the stones will be thrown. So you who throw the first one, you are effectively killing her. So you better be really confident that you've got some high ground to stand on, right? So he is holding them to this. So what we're seeing here, right, is an incredibly radical shift that up to this point in religion and culture and civilization did not happen. We have a God not only speaking and interfering, but defending someone, not an innocent. She committed adultery, but defending someone who is becoming a victim of unnecessary violence. He was standing up for her. He was defending her because he's giving an example to say, this is a new kingdom. There are new rules. I hear your old rules, but look at what I'm doing. There is something new happening, marked by my presence, marked by my ministry. This is new. And it's yours to join. And it is defined not by law, but by mercy and by grace. Right? So that is this moment. The whole thing is shifting. And then he sits down. He sits down. He's done. Right? This is that incredible piece. Again, when we started this, the first sermon from Father Tim in this little series of three, that when we are filled with the love of God, we are confident enough to be, not be threatened. And that consistently what Jesus does is to not answer the questions that are thrown at him, but to take it to that deeper level. We saw it earlier in John and we see it again here. And what he is asking them is, who are you to judge? And what kingdom do you follow? Because I've got a new one, right? And that's what he's laying out before them. And then he sits down because he's done. He's not fighting. He's, he's, he's laid it out. And then it says one by one, they peel off. Starting with the oldest, starting with potentially those with the most knowledge and wisdom and life experience that did deeply understand what he was saying that knew just how far they were from the mark of sinless themselves. 
And I, I wonder too, in that moment, how many were already like holding the stones. And if there was this really powerful, like percussive dropping, right? And then I can't help but imagine this, this woman standing there, right? And if you heard some stones falling, right? You'd like, you'd flinch, right? Because what would the question be? It would be, did they miss or did they fall, right? It's an incredible moment that would have been beyond the realms of what anyone would have seen before. And then as, as Augustine writes, all that was left of the whole crowd were two people, the unfortunate woman and compassion incarnate. It's all that was left. And then Jesus stands up again. He stands up again and he says to her, woman. Now to our ears, that sounds a little, it sounds a little harsh, a little aloof, a little condescending to address her as woman. But what this is, is just the standard feminine turn of respectful address. So we'd almost have to pivot to our brothers and sisters down south. This would be like a ma'am, right? He says, where are they? Now, likely this was a very rhetorical question that she knew they'd left. But it's also interesting to think that up until this point, she was likely either, if I picture, like if I was in this scenario, I'm either looking down with everyone behind me or I'm looking straight at Jesus, right? So there's also a potential here that he asked, where are they? And she may not have totally known that they'd all left. So imagine the relief. Where are they? (sighs) They're gone, right? And then he says, has no one condemned you? Has no one condemned you? She says, no one, Lord. And this is the mirror term, right? It's not just Lord, it could also be sir. So in a moment where she has been subjected to deep shame and public humiliation, Jesus humanizes her, he addresses her, right? He cares for her in this moment. No one, Lord. So then he says, neither do I condemn you. Go now and sin no more. We hear in John 8, the echo of John 3, right? That God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world through him. We hear this later in Romans where it says, therefore you have no excuse, O man. Every one of you who judges for in passing judgment on one another, you condemn yourself because you, the judge, practice the very same thing. What Jesus is doing here is he's demonstrating and giving us a model of the mercy and forgiveness that defines the kingdom of God. Deep mercy and deep forgiveness that again, before had been unheard of. He's challenging the pattern of society. He's challenging the pattern of how religions were founded and deities were identified through love and mercy. It is the uniqueness of Jesus against the backdrop of history. It is the uniqueness of scripture and the kingdom of God that shows its deep glory and power because he stood in the gap and he broke the whole system down. As, as Gerard sums it up really beautifully, he says, against the mythic deities stands a God 
who does not emerge from the misunderstanding regarding victims, but who voluntarily assumes the role of the single victim of the scapegoat and makes possible for the first time the full disclosure, the full retirement of the single victim of the scapegoat mechanism. So it's not because he's caught up in this phenomenon of contagious violence, but because he steps into it and completely subverts it. It's incredible. Just incredible. So what does that mean for us? What does that mean as we sort of hear this and listen to this today? And I feel that it's the same questions that we have to ask ourselves, which is, who are we to judge and what kingdom do we follow? Right? Because if it is the kingdom of God, if that is the kingdom we say we really want to align to, then the incredibly difficult next question we have to ask is, who are our scapegoats? And thankfully, we have the Holy Spirit within us, right? We have the paraclete, we have the lawyer of the defense, the defender of the accused to help us suss this out. Who in our lives have we potentially been too, too willing to exploit to make a point? Have we been okay with creating a caricature of? Who have we been okay with dehumanizing, with oversimplifying, with using to make a point? Who do we do that to? And what does that mean? And more importantly, how do we pull back from it? Right? And we all do it. Every single one of us. But the challenge and the call is to say, how do we restore these people to justice and face them with the grace and mercy that we have been given, right? Because it is so hard. And the only way we can do this, the only way we can walk out this kind of mercy and grace that defines the kingdom of God is by having a deep understanding that we've been given it too that we were just as deserving, but we were given it. So then we can't help but have to give it to others, right? So then we can think about what are those things, not the stones that you're ready to throw, waiting for that conversation, waiting for that door to open, right? Not those. What are the stones that we're really worried about getting thrown? What are the ones that when a topic comes up, we flinch a little because we feel it? That maybe we worry that, that God himself is holding a stone for us because we just cannot believe he would be that gracious. That first we have to truly understand that they're gone and he does not judge us. He does not condemn and he does not hold them anymore that they've dropped. So when we can feel that level of grace and forgiveness, then we are more equipped to want to give it to others because we know we're not on a high ground. We know we've been right there, but we also know that we are accepted, we are forgiven, and we are told to go and sin no more. Now she definitely did sin again, and we definitely will too, right? But the point is that we're always met again with grace and we keep trying, right? This is why we're walking out things around the way of love and rule of life and right, this is why we do this, to grow closer, to grow deeper so that we can humbly give the radical grace and mercy that defines the kingdom of God. Let's pray.
Dear Heavenly Father, it's my prayer this afternoon that we are able to feel the safety of your grace, the safety of your forgiveness, that we can hear those stones fall that we're worried are coming for us. Those things that we worry that are just too big or too much to be forgiven, that we can know we are not hold, held in judgment. And Father, may you give us the strength, may you give us the boldness and confidence to be filled with your love so that we can face the world around us with your depth of grace and mercy. In Jesus' name.